1: Every team, every topic, everywhere,
0: this is Believe.
2: Welcome to the Center Court Podcast with Hall of Famer Ralph Sampson. I'm Jason Zone Fisher, and we're so excited that you've decided to download and listen to another episode because we got a great one in store today. We have an incredible guest joining us today, a nine-year NFL veteran, a linebacker for the Buffalo Bills, Pittsburgh Steelers, and Arizona Cardinals. This man has had an equally impressive career off the field as on. I'm talking about Arthur Motes.
1: The Moats experience is going to be fun. JMU, hometown of myself, and actually married one of my cousin's daughters. So it's going to be fun to get him on to see his perspective in the NFL,
2: it's a small world. Now, Ralph, you've gotten to know Arthur. You were on his this podcast. What can the listeners expect as we're about to bring him on?
1: Hey, I, I'm just going to let him do it. I'm just you got to <laughs> hear this guy. I mean, you you don't know him from a alley standpoint. You know him from a football player, but a great person, great human being, doing great things in his community. But with a beast on the football field. So I can't wait till we get started.
2: That's right. He had an amazing football career, but what he's doing since retiring is equally as impressive, turned into a bit of a media mogul with a podcast, a book. We'll get into all of that, and we're going to tackle some of the issues that we're talking about today in terms of social justice uh, COVID-19, everything that we're all experiencing in the sports world is certainly going through. So this is a guy you're going to want to hear.
1: Go be fun let's say he's got to you, listen, hear him he's, he's, he's a wonderful guy.
2: All right, well let's get right to it without further ado. It's time for the Arthur Motes experience here on Center Court. Okay, we are super excited to have an NFL veteran on the show today. This man played nine seasons in the NFL, a linebacker for the Buffalo Bills, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Arizona Cardinals. and of course, he's born and raised in Virginia, very important to Ralph. And now he's a media mogul himself. Welcome to the show, Arthur Moats. Arthur welcome How you welcome, doing, man? man?
0: Man, I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you guys, man. Anytime I get to first off be on with a legend, and Ralph is always awesome. Man. And Jason, man, I already know you're doing your thing out there on the west coast, man. So, a pleasure to be on with both of you guys.
2: Oh, thank you.
1: So, the, the, the crazy party was born in
2: 1988.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, my, my I was in the prime of my career by that time, 88, when he was just born in the state of Virginia. So, I welcome you. I didn't, you know, it was Arthur Moats uh one of the best to play at james matt hometown so coming from virginia and then coming to james your hometown it's just kind of amazing to, and and marrying one of my cousin's daughters.
0: <laughs> yes indeed so oh, it's wow. just
1: kind of kind of crazy how all this works so anyway welcome
0: hey, anniversary to the tomorrow too man it be nine years man it's exactly i know i know yeah. it's kind of wow. <laughs> happy
2: anniversary that's incredible all yeah. right <laughs> Nice. Well, well. thank you for joining us here today. We're really excited, you know, to talk a little bit about your career, how you got to where you are today, uh, looking back on your playing days and and what you're doing now. And um, l- let's start back when you, you know, played at James Madison University. Was the NFL always yes, a goal of yours? Is that something that was always, you thought, in reach? Or when did you first discover and realize that you can do this better than most.
0: Yeah, man. So for me, I was extremely passionate about football at an early age. I was probably four or five years old when I started playing. And when I found out about the opportunity to play professionally, that became, you know, priority number one for me. So even when I would excel in the classroom, it was solely for the purpose of making it to the NFL because they told me at an early age, hey, you gotta have good grades to go to college and things like that. So it was probably have been my junior year. We had just finished up. We ended up losing in the semifinals of the uh, NCAA playoffs. But I had a really good breakout season. And we're doing the – so everybody hear about the pro days and stuff. But they have junior days as well where you're still able to work out for the scouts. And obviously in Harrisonburg, Virginia, (laughs) this is probably in January, February timeframe. The weather isn't the best. It's cold. It's like a slushy, rainy mix thing. And I end up going out and I do my workout. I run my 40. I think I ran a four, it was a four, five, five or four, five, four at the time in the rain. And these scouts were like, Holy cow. Like we knew it was productive, but now this is like crazy fast. Yeah. So from then I started to get a lot of buzz. I mean, I remember going into the uh, spring ball and the summer training workouts and stuff like that. How many agents were starting to contact me. And I knew just from the guys ahead of me that had made it to the NFL. They said, when, when agents start to hit you up, the more agents you have trying to reach out to you, the more likely you are to probably get drafted because they're seeing the time that you have. They understand, like, hey, this is going to be dollars and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. I just started to get that idea that, man, you know what, I can't do this. And then my senior year happened where I ended up being the uh, defensive player of the year for the whole uh, nation. And that was, like, just the pinnacle of it all. I mean, it really set me apart and really gave me that confidence that, you know what, this is really about to happen, man. I can really make it into the NFL, man. So everything just started happening just one thing after another and after another. And then just hearing guys like Mel Kiper talk about you, man, like <laughs> me coming from a one double a school, you don't get that. Mel Kiper only talks about USC, Michigan Tech, the bigger schools. But for him to have singled me out and say, man, you know, this guy right here is going to be a steal in the draft. That's it was just 100% like, all right, we're confirmed, we're going. Yeah, so,
1: Jay, you got to understand, though, look. So Virginia product, born and raised in the Tidewater area.
0: 757,
1: right. seven, baby. 757. Yes, seven. um, <laughs> Alan Iverson to, I mean, it's football, but uh, Michael yeah. Vick football players heaven yeah. in 757. So absolutely. Tell me about a little bit of that because there was a documentary recently on the 757 and the history of all the athletes that come out of 757. Yeah. I mean, even University of Virginia had one of the coach London that was a coach of yeah. And he purposely was hired at Virginia to bring kids out of 757 from going. From Virginia Tech to Virginia so yes <laughs> how did that happen with you when you grow growing up down there? because 7 for seven is a unique area
0: yeah man um in terms of the talent down there it's, it's crazy and I mean we talk about football a lot but we've had you know athletes hall of famers olympians all from that same area LaShawn Mary you know Alonzo Mourning as well yeah, yeah. uh mm-hmm. obviously we talk about your Michael Victor, your Allen Iversons but growing up man you see just so many talented guys you see the best of the best and Just in my class alone, we had Percy Harvin, who, I mean, was what, rookie of the year in the NFL, obviously national champion, Super Bowl champion. We had Cam Chancellor, Super Bowl champion as well with the Seattle Seahawks. I mean, all these guys are all part of the same class. I remember out of the 25 guys that were ranked in our area coming out my senior year, I was number 25 on the list. And just to put it in perspective, and it's like, dude, it was just so many talented guys. But at the same time, it motivates you because (laughs) – Every week, every Friday night after the game, you want to make sure your numbers are big enough that you make the paper. And, and you know, back then it wasn't the whole social media element. So you had to ball out on Friday to be in the newspaper on Saturday. And that was always the goal. And you would see the other guys getting their names out there. So for me, man, it was just that driving force of I'm going to make sure I'm not the weak link of the 757. I'm going to make sure that I'm not the guy that goes off to college and disappears. I'm going to make sure that if I go to the league. And I have a career here as well, man. I don't want to be the one and done or the the bus type of guy. So that was always the mentality coming from that area.
1: Oh yeah. You gotta have a tough mentality from the seven five seven because it just it just it's a great area for athletes uh Mm -hmm. you know i'm here and it's just amazing to see the talent that comes out of there
2: wow so in 2010 you are drafted by the buffalo bills what was it like to hear your name called you know that's a moment that all athletes dream about we just watched the nfl draft a couple months ago you see these life-changing moments can you describe what that was like for you
0: yeah, absolutely, man. It's funny. Once you get the call, it's great. But prior to the call, it was <laughs> the worst experience ever for me. Literally, we go back and talk about Mel Kiper, and he's talking about me being this draft still and all these days. And he has this big board doing the draft. Mm. So the whole time, I mean, they were saying I could go as early as the third round, but worst case scenario, fifth round. So I'm like, okay, mm. that's I mean, it's not too far of a of a draft range, but it's still good. But this was the year that they just started switching it to making it three days. So you would have to sit one day for the first round, another day for the second and third round, Then you got to come back for the third day for fourth through seven. So literally I get email. I think I get an email on the start of the second day from the Chiefs to make sure my contact information is good. So I'm like, okay, third round Kansas City, we already have a connection there. It's a lot of love with the coaching staff. It's going to be good. No phone call. I'm like, all right. Okay. Fourth round happens. San Francisco 49ers, they flew me out there. They talked to my parents, my high school coaches, like everything. This is when Coach Singletary was there. Yeah. And we're like, okay, it's a great connection. They're on the clock. They need a linebacker. I'm about to get – I'm going to San Fran. I was hyped because I wanted yeah. to go to the West Coast anyways. <laughs> but they take Navarro Bowman. Now, at the time, we didn't know Navarro Bowman was going to turn into what he was. So I was <laughs> pissed. I'm like, this is crazy, man. Like, how are you going to take this guy? He wasn't even the best guy on his team there. He was like the third best defender. Obviously, high sight 2020, great pick by them. So, you know, I'm still mad, though. So fifth round happens. Now I'm losing my mind because I've seen a punter from Virginia Tech get drafted. And, I mean, as a football player, you're like, Yo, if I'm a defensive player of the year, there's no way you're yeah. taking a punter, a kicker over me. If you do, this is the utmost disrespect. So when that happened, I've completely lost it. I mean, my family's at the house. We had, like, the local camera crews. I'm walking upstairs like, man, it's over. I'm not getting drafted. I'm about to go find a regular job. Like, I I, it's over. You <laughs> it, it took a punter before me. I, I suck. <laughs> but then – you know, the sixth round starts. And I initially, get the phone call, but it's not from the Bills. It's from the uh, the New York Giants. And mm-hmm. they were saying they wanted to draft me. So I'm like, all right, this is great. I'm getting excited about it. Then I hang up with the Giants, and now the Falcons are calling me as well. And they're talking about, hey, man, we, we're going to trade back into this round to get you. So I'm, like, going crazy. And I'm running back downstairs the whole time. The Buffalo Bills were trying to call me, but they couldn't. So they called my mother. They're on the phone with my mother downstairs. They're going crazy because they know I'm about to get drafted. They're on the clock right now. So I literally <laughs> meet them there. I'm trying to tell him about the Falcons. She's like, the Bills are drafty right now. So I literally hang up on the Falcons guy mid-conversation. <laughs> mid grab the phone from my mom, uh, Buddy Nix, was the GM for the Bills. He's like, hey, man, welcome to Buffalo, man. We're drafting. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. I run to the TV, see my name, go absolutely just nuts, man. So it was, wow. it was one of the best experiences after the fact. Yeah. But like I said, prior to that call, oh, man, I was miserable going through it, man. Wow, thank uh, you for taking us through that. I yeah, no, it was that. good. I was yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, so, so,
1: so when you saw your name on the screen, so you get the mm-hmm. call, you saw your name on your screen. Yeah, family and friends see, especially down in seven five seven. I know they oh, went yeah. crazy. What, what was that like in the house when, when that you were relieved, family were yeah. relieved. At least you know you were drafted and you had the opportunity to yes. go somewhere and, and and play, but you didn't know what to expect at that point in time, but mm-hmm. that moment, how how did that feel inside? How did yeah. it feel to make your mom feel and the family feel?
0: Yeah, man, I just remember, man, when I got the chance to see my name go across the screen, I'm just so overjoyed because this is something I've worked my whole life yeah. for. This is the goal that I've always had. So many doubters along the way. I mean, you talked about how it could sell. I even say that you can't make it academically at UVA. For me, I heard so many people tell me that, number one, oh, high school athletes make it to the NFL. Oh, and you're going to a 1AA. It's even less to make it from 1AA to the NFL. Oh, and then to get drafted, it's even smaller than that. And I would hear this every single day. But it was something that I was always using as a driving force for me. So when I finally got that call, it was kind of like that moment of relief. Like, man, all this hard work is finally paid off. I remember just falling on the floor. My cousin, my, my, my younger cousin, who I actually played with in high school and in college, he's over top, be going crazy. My parents are going nuts. Then I just remember my father, he comes back into the room, and he has a Bill's hat. And to this day, I, I just figured it out that he probably had every NFL team's hat. Right. And, and just <laughs> that one just, and in case, the time, just in case. Yeah, but at the time, I was like, Dad, you knew, like you know what it is. So it was And
1: you crazy. didn't tell me. You didn't tell me. <laughs> right. he knew, he didn't tell you. Like, I was I'm like, like, you knew. <laughs> that was amazing. And, that's, bro, that's
0: but it was really just funny. an awesome feeling. And I'll say this too: at the time, my geography wasn't the best. So when they said Buffalo, they were going to New York. So I'm thinking Buffalo is like New York City. Right, right, right. So I'm thinking I'm going to New York City the whole time. <laughs> I'm like, even, I'm big city, bright lights. I'm going to be a, a megastar. <laughs> then I find out that Buffalo is actually A little like bit farther out. Western New York
2: is it's Canada. It's a little different. But the yeah. opposite of New York City, yeah. <laughs> very, very true. Very oh, opposite. Wow, that is too funny. And then- uh, right away, I mean, you make an impact as a rookie. You you had a, a strong rookie season, and yeah. uh, a fun fact here that you had a, a pretty big hit your your rookie yeah. season, and I think you know what I'm alluding to. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that's, that?
1: Because that's why some you don't want to remember, but somebody else might not want to remember. He might remember. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: hey, for me, man, it's just a play that
0: I will always remember. It's the talking about with Brett Favre, man, and the thing with it. Just to give you a little context. To that point, to that uh, game, Brett Favre started 297 games consecutively. It spanned over, I think, 13, 14 seasons, something just crazy. NFL record. And at the, NFL, yeah, it's NFL record, and no one is probably ever going to come close to that. I think the closest that's ever been, I think Eli was at 197. So you got to think how many more years a row of starting he would have to play, correct? Yeah. So you think about all the Hall of Famers that have hit him, all the the Pro Bowlers, all these legends that have had a chance to play against Brett Favre. I mean, banged him up, good. Mm-hmm. He always comes back. He always plays. He always finishes the game. So, literally, man, we're going into this game. And I remember sitting in warm-ups. I mean, my rookie year, I'm not going to lie, I, I, would, I would fanboy sometimes. Like, I would get out early before, like, the team would come out just to watch certain guys. So, mm-hmm. I remember seeing Adrian Peterson come out. I'm like, oh, it's AP. And I remember <laughs> seeing Brett Favre come out, I'm like, yo, look at how he's throwing the ball. I'm like, <laughs> he looks kind of oh, He got the gray hair and everything. Because, I mean, he was probably – Close to forty, or maybe forty, by then and we're yeah. like, "Dang, like, what is Brett Favre?" I mean, you, you know, this the kid that I mean, you. I grew up watching him. I remember seeing him win a Super Bowl in Green Bay. I remember all mm-hmm. these things, man. So my, my teammate at the time he says to me, he's like, "Yo, how crazy would it be if you get a chance to like get a sack on the day?" And I'm like, "Bro, that'd be nuts." No. But at the same time, I'm like, "Man, it's Brett Favre. Favre, man, you don't just sack Brett Favre, baby. That's not what you do." So we totally forget about it, man. The game starts, and Lydia's my first play in the game, third play overall. And just like, I mean, I remember like it was yesterday, man, just lining up and everything happening on the play, like how it did during the film session. We would break down film on him. and We would study his tendencies, his habits. we talked about how, you know, he likes to extend plays, but he, he has a bad habit of drifting back to where the pressure is coming from just because he's so comfortable out there, so familiar with everything that's going on that he gets mm-hmm. real and days in that regard. And I just remember, man, one of those, I mean, it's kind of like the perfect play you dream up like, man, I'm going to be coming on the backside. He's not going to see me at all. Me increasing speed. He's still not going to notice me because they always notice you. They yeah. always. I mean, faithfully, I've chased down guys and they always catch you right at the last second and you miss or the hit isn't as good as you wanted to be. But this one was just that perfect. He doesn't see me. He's drifting back. I'm full speed. And the collision was just one of the I mean, one of my best hits ever. Yeah. And it was a clean hit, might I add you, because I think that was important, too, especially during that time frame where you had the, the people doing the bounties and stuff like that. But it was a clean hit. And, I mean, just everything that transpired after that, him not finishing the game, then the following him not starting. And then I just remember getting a phone call from my agent saying, that, hey, man, ESPN wants to talk to you in the morning. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean What to talk to me? Like, what's going on? Like yo, he didn't start. Like this is crazy. Like you're you're part of history now. And yeah, (laughs) I remember the
2: streak. Yeah, yeah, the streak. Two
0: hundred ninety seven games. But I remember doing the interview with ESPN, standing inside the team facility, watching myself do the interview on ESPN, and just going absolutely crazy in the locker room. Like yo, this is crazy. I'm
2: really on ESPN live (laughs) right now. (laughs) Have you ever had a chance to speak to Brett Favre since then?
0: Funny thing is no. I've reached out to him a couple of times. I reached out to his agent. I've had fans that have brought different memorabilia from both of us to him. Yeah, still no, not, nothing at all, man. Wow. And, and I, He do not want to remember. He doesn't want to remember
1: that. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I can understand, you know, because everything transpired after the hit and all that. But, man, I mean, I'm a fan still. I'm like, yo, Brett, like, what's up? <laughs> <man?"> <laughs> yeah,
2: wow,
1: wow. He do not want to see you. He doesn't want to see that coming. Well, <laughs> well it is a very amazing.
2: unique piece of NFL history that wow. you uh, are a, a part of there. The, a record that will never be broken, mm. and it ended because you broke it. Yeah. You, you ended it, Yeah. That, crazy man, crazy amazing.
1: talk. You know, a hit like Brett Favre. Uh, I can. I'm trying to relate that to basketball and sports. When yeah. your moments uh, then it get kind of gets hyped, hyped up. You know, I, my special moment was you know beating the Lakers and Magic Johnson and the Cleveland George Georgia bar We we spoke yeah. about mm-hmm. as well, and 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 having that moment of excitement. Now, I, I, what is that like? You know, to 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 for, for all these point in times in your career. Thinking when you were a young kid, I'm a I'm a sack breaker yeah. in the NFL. But what's another moment that you may
0: have? Man, so um, actually, I got a couple of those things, man, where they just stand out like that. But for me, man, I think back to uh, – this would have been my first year in Pittsburgh, my fifth year in league, Monday night football, my first Monday night football game ever. And we're playing against the division rival, the Baltimore Ravens. And Now, their quarterback at the time was Joe Flacco, and mind you, he was my first collegiate sack when he played at Delaware. And now I'm like, this is my first Monday night football game. Man, this is crazy. <laughs> and literally, I remember – getting me one of those, like, you know, the perfect, you hit your perfect move, and you're like, it just goes and go. I hit my rush move, and it just, everything was flawless with it, man. I remember getting this big-time sack on Flacco, big-time play, it ultimately flipped the momentum in the game, because at the time, I think it was either, we were either down or it was tied, and I remember getting the big sack. From there, we ended up scoring the next drive, and the whole game just flipped on its head, and we ended up blowing them out. But for me, that was just so crazy because I always dreamed of playing on Monday Night Football. That's I mean, this the the game you watch, you grow watching, Monday Night Football. Mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. talks about it. And for my first Monday Night Football game ever, I get to have this big momentum flipping play. And I remember just going to social media after the game and just seeing the the impact, how many people were hitting me up, how many people that I didn't even know were just like, yo, man, crazy game, man. I got a chance to see that, man. This is nuts. And yeah. I'm just like, whoa, like this is what it's like to play on Monday Night Football in a rivalry when you're actually making plays out there. And I just remember that that game, man, just ultimately changing my whole trajectory. I felt like from going from just being a good play to being able to be known around the NFL and getting that type of respect that I really wanted.
1: And Joe Flacco didn't want to see you either, right? I mean, he, he, <laughs> it. he don't want to see no. you either. He probably won't, hey, take, hey. Your call. He won't <laughs> take your call, right? And so I, I
0: tell people I'm a quarterback, because that's the guy <laughs> I was going to consistently get a play on him, man. Every, every time I played him, I always make plays on him. I'm sure. I'm
2: sure he would appreciate that for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah he, he he's not going to knock at your door anytime soon. Yeah. Sure.
2: So, in 2014, you signed with the Pittsburgh Steelers, and your career really blossomed there in Pittsburgh, uh, where you became a, a vital member of that Steelers Absolutely. team. Why do you think your career really took off there? And and talk a little bit about Coach Tomlin too, and yeah, w- what makes him such a great coach?
0: Man, so first off, I think you know, the thing that really helped my career going to to Pittsburgh versus Buffalo was just the market. Um, I was still making plays in Buffalo, but the thing is, if you're making a play on Sunday at one o'clock when it's 10 other games being played at one o'clock and you're the Buffalo Bills, you're not the Dallas Cowboys or anybody else, no one really notices, no one really cares. Mm. So when I got to Pittsburgh, we were in, we would have seven primetime games every season.
2: Yeah. In
0: Buffalo, I had one primetime game, and I was, we made it mandatory to play on Thursday night. Right. And it was against the Cleveland Browns. So nobody, I remember that in. game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nobody took in. So when, when I got to Pittsburgh, and every game were either on primetime, Sunday night, Monday night, Thursday night or we're playing at the 425, which is the national spotlight for the earlier games. Mm. Anytime I made a play, somebody was going to see it. It was, it was a ton of eyes on it. So I think that was the biggest reason why I became more known and my platform got so much bigger and I got so much notoriety around me was because of that. Then obviously you're playing in the playoffs I mean, you make plays in the playoffs, man. That's totally different. And I got a chance to be a part of one of the craziest playoff games ever, us versus the Cincinnati Bengals. Mm-hmm. So that was just a whole, whole other situation from a media standpoint. So that really helped my career blossom in that regard. But then you're talking about being with Coach Tomlin. First off, I mean, this guy's from the hometown, man. Seven five seven guy. Mm-hmm.
1: That's another another guy. Another guy. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so for me, man. I- I always like we always had a relationship, even when I was in Buffalo. Anytime we played Pittsburgh, we would always have you know conversations and, and joke about the fact we're both from the 757, but he went to William and Mary, which yep. is the rival yep. to Jay so, exactly, and yeah, time. Yeah, so so we would always joke about that and poke fun at each other. But ultimately, man, with Coach Tomlin, the thing that makes him so special is just how re- how relatable he is to the players. He's able to motivate each person individually because of how close he is to each one of us. And some people give him a bad rap and they say, well, he's too close to the players. But I think that's the reason why he's always had successful teams. I mean, he's the only coach. When you look at his tenure, he's never had a losing season. Right. And, and, and that's crazy to think about, yeah. especially last year when he didn't even have Ben Roethlisberger for more than a game. I mean, right. each year he knows how to motivate each player to get the best out of him. It was certain ways that he would challenge me both mentally and physically. And some of the times, I mean, you would get upset with him initially, because you're like, man, this doesn't feel comfortable to me. But at the end of the season, when you're looking back, you're like, man, I grew so much more because of that. I became so much of a better player both on and off the field because of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Give, me, give me one of those things. Coaches are always important in our careers, mm-hmm. right? In life, even. Not just sports, but in life. Maybe a teacher. Mm-hmm. So from the 757, who, who, who was that person that? Kind of motivate you, and then you talk about Coach Tileman. He motivated, you. and what did he do to motivate you when you were down and out or whatever? Yeah. He knew probably how you were, your attitude was, how you were playing, because he knows the game, you know. Well, when you have a coach, yeah. In my NBA career, I got guys coaches that didn't even play the game. They just, they, they, <laughs> yes. one guy, one guy with a shoe wrap, you know, oh, Carol Nodham with a shoe wrap. So <laughs> he didn't even play the game, but he he, he a shoe wrap. So he's assistant coach, right? Mm-hmm. We had uh, Rudy Tomjanovich, who was a the player. They made him the scout. how crazy is that back then but when you have a real coach that knows Uh, the game how did he motivate you and who motivated you when you were younger
0: yeah man so for me man when we're talking about coach tomlin and how he motivated me oddly enough it wasn't just on the field a lot of people just think like man he helped me to you know become a more productive player he hit me in a way that that blew my mind because when i first came to pittsburgh I mean, I was obsessed with football. Like, all I cared about was being the best player. Like, I didn't care about family. I didn't care about community. I cared about football. Even mm-hmm. though I would do some stuff in the community, it still wasn't on the same level because football was always my obsession. Like, I would go on a vacation, and I'm not even enjoying the vacation because I'm like, yeah, I got to work out. Wherever we're right, at, right. I'm working out X amount of hours. This, That's just how it goes. And I remember him sitting in his office. This is probably – a month or two after I've signed and we're just having this conversation, talking about our goals for the season and stuff like that. And he was like, man, if all you do this year is be a great player, you're not doing enough. You're wasting your time. And I was like, what do you mean by that? He was like, because as a football player, first of all, you have this platform. It's important that you're not only impacting the people on the field, but you got to make sure you're impacting this community in the right way. You got to make sure that you're doing the right things at home too, because he was saying that when you're doing all of these things and affecting all these people in a positive way, it's going to ultimately help you on the field and help where your mind needs to be at as well when you're going out here and all these other things along that nature. So for me, it really opened my eyes to help me to not just solely focus, be a a better husband, be a better father, be a better person in the community. And ultimately, that helped me so much more than just me would have told me, hey, man, 10 sacks, that's all you need to do this year. Like, that's all you need to focus on. Because I don't know mentally if I would have been in the right space for that. And then when you're talking about from my hometown, man, I was very fortunate, man. I had both my parents in my life growing up. Uh, Both were pastors. My father was a former Marine for 13 years. So, I mean, you talk about discipline. You talk about the the stern upbringing and all that stuff, man. Like we had that, but it was was very, very helpful for me because I needed that, especially in the environment we were growing up in. And some of these communities that we lived in, they weren't the best. And it was a lot of distractions to say the least. But them two, especially... You know, kept me on the right path, and then my uncle—he was the one who really guided me in terms of developing my early years in terms of football because he was the athlete of the family. My father—I mean, he—he he didn't really care about sports. I mean, he's a fan of sports, but from a technical standpoint, he can't really teach you that. But mentally, he—that's where he specialized in. But it was—it was definitely the group work, man, between my parents and my uncle, though. Man, they—they they stirred me the right way. They went back and uh, avoiding as many
1: distractions as possible. Uh, there you go. Attractions are always there, and whatever level it is they are—they right, always get. Oh, without a doubt, <laughs> without a doubt, they're always there, brother. They're always there. It's crazy how that works, right?
2: For sure. Well, you've you've always been a leader in in the community. That's been something that's been very important to you. In 2013, with the bills, you were there. Walter paid a Man of the Year uh, yeah. recipient. Um, what are some of the things that you did in the community and continue to do in the community as your way to give back?
0: Yeah, man. So for me, I'm I'm a big believer in just whatever I've received. I feel like it's my responsibility, my duty to impact us, to make people around me better. I think it's important that if I just care about myself being successful and I'm the only one successful around everybody else is being unsuccessful, then how am I really going to enjoy my quality of life in that regard? So I always thought it was important to pull those around me in the communities I was in and make them better. So some of the things that I uh, worked with, some of the organizations when I was in Buffalo was United Way. I was their spokesperson. And then um, I did some stuff with UNIS, which is a, a blood donation center and things like that, which is a ton of fun, obviously the Red Cross as well. But when I got to Pittsburgh, I continued my work with the United Way, but I ultimately got more focused on the Arana McDonald House charities. And with that, man, I ended up being a board member with them. I actually still am an active board member. And just being able to locking on a charity like that, the reason I enjoyed it was because not only could me and my wife feel the impact when we go to visit it and see the impact we're having and get lessons from it, but our children, we're able to bring them as well and they could see firsthand how fortunate they are, but at the same time to understand that just because we're here doesn't mean that you're not supposed to be involved as well, that you're not supposed to be helping out and impacting people. And it's awesome that to this day, it's times where my kids will say, hey, Let's go visit this person. Let's go donate this. Let's go get involved with that because I can see the impact of you paying it forward. And ultimately that's going to instill a new generation of people that want to help out in the communities and ultimately make the world a better place. And that's what I think it's all about. And so it's a great, I mean, great point.
1: So you bring your kids up in a way where they give to the community, they give back at an early age. So that'll stay with them for life. We, We all grew up that way. You know, when you grew up in the sports where my mother played basketball, my dad, with a, a saxophonist and this, that, and another, Oops, but okay. you, you always <laughs> didn't communicate that impact. How did the world today with protests mm-hmm. and things going on? I mean, people always ask me, how did it affect me when I grew up? I didn't see racism. I mean, I just saw people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we interact, we played with people, we did things. Maybe I look back and I say, well, that was possibly racism, but it wasn't. But how do you educate your kids in today's market? And some things you may experience that we, we don't think about as, as athletes, right? Mm-hmm. We don't think about what that looked like back then because we were always playing. We were always enjoying playing. We might see it today as definitely, but back then we didn't see it.
0: Yeah, yeah, you, you definitely hit on some good points, man. From an athletic standpoint, a lot of times we would always talk about, that's like the, the United Nations almost, man, because everybody right. is mixed up, different backgrounds, different upbringings, different beliefs, but we all could work together and coexist because we had a common goal, which was winning. And something that I always try to teach my children to this day is find the common goal. What is the common goal? We want humans to feel good being here. We want people regardless of their color, regardless of their their background, regardless of their religion, whatever it may be, we wanna make sure that they are enjoying their life as well. And it's funny that, you know, when I look back, I honestly, there were times where I would see some of the social injustice, more so from the police brutality standpoint in the particular area that I was in, I would see that a lot more than the quote unquote racism just because from a location standpoint, it wasn't a lot of non minorities in my area you right. know, that, that was right, predominantly right. where I grew up at. But the police brutality, element, of, we would see that a lot. And it was, you know, almost to the point where it was just normal. And some of the things that, you know, when, when your parents have to talk with you about how to interact with police officers and things like that, I thought that was a normal conversation that everybody has. Right. And then you get to college and you talk with people that aren't minorities or, or different professionals who don't come from that same background. And they're like, I've never had that conversation with my parents before. I've never heard anything like that. Right, before. right, right. So those are some of the things I look back and I'm like, oh, that's, that's what was that's, going that's on. That's what that was. Right right, <laughs> right, right. You never pay attention, but
1: you look yeah, back You, you yeah. just
0: thought it was normal, Right. So, for me, man, I always try to teach my children, though, now that everything that's happening, when you see the protests, educating them on why it's happening. And I think that's important the educational element of it. And then not just seeing it and saying, okay, let's be enraged and let's make it black versus white or let's make it, I don't like this group of people versus that. It's like, no, how can we bridge that gap? Because I would always get offended when people would say that all NFL players are. drug dealers and they beat their wives and they do this or they do that. I'm like, it's a small group that do that. The rest of us are actually really good people.
1: Right. And right, right.
0: I would always say don't blanket us in that. So how hypocritical of me would I be if I were to say that about police officers, if I were to say that about non-minorities. So I think it was important and I still to this day feel it's important that when I'm talking to my children about you know what's currently going on in the climate in, in the US to educate them on that. That hey, just because a select few Crosses the line just because a select few are, you know, not the 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 most, I guess, friendly people are, or, or not the the people that they want to see equal rights. Don't let that ruin it for everyone else. Keep, keep the communication going. Educate right. people. And the ones that want to be reached, the ones that want to change, will they will change. Yeah, Absolutely. Changing. But at the same time, it's just like in anything. You can't expect everybody to want to change because no. some people, that's what they care about. That's all they know, and they're they're set in their ways. But for the ones that want to change, the ones that want to be educated on it, have that conversation with them.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a good point, because those conversations are not had. Typically, Mm -hmm. you know, you talk about history and whatever. They only tell the history that they want to tell or want to see. Right. The deeply rooted history doesn't come out until stuff like this happens. Mm -hmm. Then it explodes like it's exploding now. So it's amazing to hear you speak about that, because coming from 757, we, we know what's down in the 757. Seven. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm right off of Jefferson Highway, right, Parkway, yeah. right now. We, we know where that is. <laughs> yes. uh, and the seven cities down here are crazy, which they don't work together, but mm. sports ties a lot of stuff <laughs> together, as we know. So we're thinking about, you know, uh, and I'm sure Jason will let him take that Colin Kaepernick's uh, uh, question, but how do you unify athletes today? You know, mm-hmm. I was talking to Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, all the guys, whatever. They yeah. thought, well, Michael, you're doing this, Magic, you're doing this, whatever. But sometimes they don't work together. Yes. How do you unify the group now? How do you think we could unify athletes today to do something bigger and better in every sport?
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a great question. Um, I know one of the things that I'm a part of right now is the Players Coalition. And we've done some things predominantly with NFL athletes, but we've worked with some of the MLB players, some of the uh, the different basketball executives Um. Yeah. Um, I'm drawing a blank on. Oh, uh, Popovich, Bobby, Greg yeah. Popovich, Steve Curry. They, they're a part of the players coalition. They've helped out as well. Um, I think it's important that you find common goals. And I think that's a lot of the reason why us as professional athletes, we, we tend to want to do it our own way because right. I mean, when you're competing, it's pretty much, I mean, you have a team, but it's me. Yeah. I got to hold my weight. I have to do this because of the business element of it. And a lot of times that carries over into these initiatives that we're trying to do in terms of improving the different areas. You might want to help out with police brutality and in the conversation piece. I might want to talk about the educational element of it and and how inner city schools are are not properly funded, things like that, and now we have a disconnect. So I think it's important that we find common goals or goals that overlap. And I think that's ultimately how you can get more people working together in a cohesiveness uh, and more cohesive area. From a professional athlete standpoint, and that's one of the things is the Players Coalition that we tried to work on, and we're still working on. Mm-hmm. We were talking about, uh, we actually did the, uh, the 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 petition to end the I'm, got, I'm drawing a blank on it, but uh, qualified immunity yeah. for some of the police officers and government officials and stuff like that. That was something that we all could say, you know what, man, we all agree that this isn't right like regardless of which your passion or my passion or this and that, we all can agree on this one goal. That's some of the things, that's some of the ways we're working to work
2: together.
1: Yeah. That's a great, great coalition. I've heard Popovich talk about it quite often. Yes.
2: And that's great. That's great that you're using your voice and continuing to use your platform for good and for change and the nfl has really been at the forefront of this conversation for a long Mm -hmm. time Uh, i'm curious as someone who was playing in the nfl in 2016 2017 when colin kaepernick Mm -hmm. started raising these issues and taking a knee and and then the debate kind of shifted the focus Mm -hmm. shifted to a different conversation about the flag and the troops and that's like that's not what we're talking about guys Mm -hmm. What was it like? What were the conversations like for you and your teammates in an NFL locker room back then when it started? And I'm also curious if you were playing today, how you would react, um, whether you would kneel for the national anthem Mm -hmm. and and the types of things you would continue to do uh, from a playing perspective.
0: Yeah, man, Um, it, it was very frustrating. I remember to this day when it first started happening, Kaepernick started nailing and we understood what he was about. Mm-hmm. And then we saw how they hijacked the narrative and in Pittsburgh in particular. We were, were big victims of that because at the time we had uh, Nueva, Alejandro Villanueva, who was a yeah. former uh, Army Ranger. Yeah. And we remember the, the this would have been Chicago. I forgot what week it was. Yeah. About to play the Bears. And that Saturday is when Trump has said any player that's nailing is a son of a bee. And we were all just like, man, this is crazy. So we ended up calling the team meeting because we're like, all right, how are we going to handle this? Are guys going to kneel? Guys going to stand? And I remember we had this big debate about what we wanted to do. And we couldn't come to an agreement. So we said that we were going to stay in the locker room. And obviously the signals got crossed and everything like that. And the imagery happened how it did where Al goes out there and where the rest of us are behind him. But I remember from then they hijacked that narrative to look at this troop right here standing up against the whole NFL. And they continued to hijack that narrative, and it got real nasty and ugly, and it was very divisive amongst the team. Mm. But now, even though we feel like it's still like yo, you wasted a couple of years, yeah, you know, hiding yeah. from this thing and, and doing what you did to Kaepernick and things like that, we're we're just happy that now, okay, you're acknowledging it. Now mm. the conversation is being had. Now you're putting money involved in and in, in backing it up. But let's continue it on. Don't just make this a one-time thing. Don't just do it because it's convenient right now. Don't just do it because, oh, nationally, this is a safe space to, to, to talk about social injustice and talk about the rights of minorities. Now we can do this. Like, for us, we don't want it to just come off as a propaganda thing where you're just cutting a check just to save face. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that they continue. We're going to continue to put the pressure on them, both former and current players. And I've had conversations with numerous of my current uh, guys who are still active right now in the NFL that I'm very close with. And that's the, the mindset. we got to keep the pressure on the NFL to continue this on. Don't make this one-time thing. And ultimately, keep the pressure on from a national standpoint. Don't allow people to just, oh, we're, we're going to post this statement on social media because that's what we're supposed to do. Right, and right. then there's nothing else after that. Or we're going to post the, the black box because that's what everybody's doing. And then yep. nothing after that. No, if you're going to stand up and say you're a part of this, we're going to make sure that you're really a part of this and we're going to hold you accountable in that regard.
1: Yeah, that's that unity thing. You know, what, what what do you do? I mean, over the history of a movement or a protest, there's always something that's good come up, but it's never enough. But if we get unified together, then the coalition is one way to do that. So I'm glad you guys are doing that. I mean, NBA is trying to do what they do as well, and mm-hmm. you know, some things happening where retired player are trying to do something as well. I mean, get calls every day about this thing, but definitely yeah, we'll, we'll, figure, we'll keep figuring now. it out.
0: And I said this too from an NBA standpoint, we were jealous of y'all. all <laughs> Because we, we, we talked about how, man, your your, your organization mm. and the front office supports their players and their voice so much more. Yeah. In terms of, I mean, when the guys first came out, LeBron and Kyrie, they came with the I Can't Breathe shirts. Sure. Seeing right. that, and then just allowing like they could say what they want to say and not have to have any ramifications. The NFL, man, I remember when they came in, at first they tried to tell us look, man, it's a new rule where you're not allowed to take any anymore. You either stay in the locker room or you stand up. And we're like, yeah, this is crazy. And then from there, it was, okay, now we're going to do a deal with you guys and we'll put uh, X amount of money to a social justice oh. reform. And we're like, now you're paying this hush money to just shut up and just right. stand up out there. <laughs> right, right, so right. it was very offensive, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that ultimately is why we started the whole Players Coalition because we're like, this is crazy to us. We're not going to allow, you know, y'all to just hush us because it's not convenient right now. And now all of a sudden that it's convenient, now you want to get back into the picture. So we were always very, very, like I said, we would look at the NBA and just, man, I wish we could do that. I wish we were able to, to express ourselves in that regard right now.
1: Well, you know, so so NBA-wise, or history of sports uh, as well, Muhammad Ali days to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to Bill Russell, which I think is the greatest player that ever played in basketball, most guys fear that if they step up and say something politically, like Kaepernick, Mm-hmm. then they will get blackballed, yeah. right? So you have that hesitation in doing that, right? Because you feel like you're going to get blackballed, one. And two, if you do, then will your teammates respect you? Mm-hmm. So LeBron can do that. Yeah. LeBron <laughs> going to say, we playing or we not playing? Basically, LeBron's yeah. Gonna, if LeBron's playing, everybody's going to play. All the rest of them can go, go, go away, right? So football is like <laughs> that, but football is so massive number of people, yes. right? Basketball that way. But David Stern is the one that created all that uh, kind of – Culture mm. and basketball, and then Adam Silman's keeping it going. But it's amazing to see the different sports: baseball, football, basketball, hockey, and how the, each platform is a little bit different. Always envious of football, how big it was, <laughs> the massive and the player. We thought the, we thought you guys had a better union. <laughs> you think we had a better union, and baseball thinks they have the better. Union. I think sure. baseball might be the best. At this point because we don't get some of the things we should get in basketball, Mm. but every sport's like that. Every sport's like that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think with, with Adam Silver, you mentioned David Stern, they have been a very progressive league and uh, always allowing players to voice their opinion and has certainly struggled with, and they're making steps in the right direction. uh, And, you know, it's, it's never too late to do the right thing, but right. Arthur, like you said, just hope it's for the right reasons and not just because it's a safe thing to do. And, and we'll see what happens with that when they take the field. But that brings up another big question. Will they take the field? And there's a, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah. Arthur, what do you think? One, if you were still playing, would you have any concerns uh, given the coronavirus? And two, do you think the NFL will return and play this fall? If I was
0: playing, I definitely would have concerns. Just when you look at the numbers, and a lot of times you're seeing just the amount of people testing positive. Obviously, we we had to quarantine and the world essentially stopped. And then it was like, people forgot about the virus and now they're coming back out as if everything is fine. And then you see the numbers starting to spike again. So I would definitely have concerns just because you want to know that number one, I'm going to be okay. But number two, when I come home that my wife and children are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And you think about, I know for a fact, teammates of mine that still play that have at risk children that have a a mom or a grandparent living with them that are in the at-risk category. So when you factor in all of those things, you ask yourself, I mean, at what point is playing the sport worth the value of a life? And those are some of the things that you really have to weigh. So mm-hmm. for me, I'm not necessarily sure. I mean, i sure it would take a, a long time too, in terms of my thought process and which stage my career I was in. Mm-hmm. If you're talking my first four years before I financially quote unquote got that big break and and made it, Mm -hmm. then I'm probably more likely to play. But if you're talking about me in year six, seven, eight, or nine, when my money is a lot different, (laughs) well, I'm not willing to take that change. (laughs) I mean, that that led to some of my retirement as well because I was like, at the time, I mean, the money I had made and then seeing one of my good friends, Ryan Shazier, get hurt Mm -hmm. and for a while be paralyzed, I was like, man, hey, at what point is enough enough? So all of that kind of play into it. and, And that would definitely be a, a hard decision to make because you don't know. I mean, it, there is no vaccine just yet. Right. The information is still so wacky. And then, I mean, I, I feel like every time you turn on, you're saying, okay, Ezekiel Elliott just tested positive 23 players yep. from, from Clemson football tested positive 12 from Texas. I mean, yes. you just look, it's not just one place yep. and, and it's not just like a small university. These are the, the power five programs where they have all the resources so if those guys are getting it, I mean, anybody could get it. Yeah. And, and for me, that would be a big, big decision to make.
2: Well, do you think, wh- what do you think is going to happen? I mean, there's I, I, billions of dollars at stake here, You're absolutely right. Uh, but there's the, lives the health and potentially lives yeah. at stake too. Uh, yeah. Do you have any guess?
0: So for me, honestly, well, if you would to ask me this two weeks ago, <laughs> I'd be like, you know what? I think it is going to happen, but... Now you're starting to see – because in my mindset, it was like, okay, I'm anticipating MLB and NBA already have being back, already have being agreed to put this is what we're going to do. But you're not seeing that right now. You're seeing where the MLB, I think it was yesterday, they closed down all spring training facilities. Yep, yep. You saw the NBA, they are talking about wearing the, the the track, the the health rings and stuff like that and, and trying to see if they can track. But it's still – that's in Florida. And we're talking about how everything right now is happening in Florida. So – With those two leagues potentially being put on hold, now I'm starting to have my second guesses about the NFL because, number one, MLB and NBA rosters are drastically smaller. I mean, you you talk about an NBA roster, you might carry, what, 20, 25 guys, and that's complete staff, coaches, and players. Mm -hmm. NFL is 60 guys, and that's just active players in practice squad. That's not counting your coaching staff, your training staff, your your, your weight room people, not even counting in the offseason when you have a 90-man roster. It's right. So yeah. logistically, you can't just say, oh, we're going to go stay in a bubble with every team there. You, you know how hard it is to have a hotel that has two sets, can uh, have two teams there. Like, these yeah. are some of the, the issues from a logistical standpoint that are going on right now. So that's why, for me, I'm not as confident that the NFL is going to happen because logistically, it's so much that needs to be worked out. And if you still don't have a vaccine, well, the, it's, people are going to spread it. it. And you're not going to mm-hmm. tell me, if you count the thousands of NFL athletes that there are, that – there are more guys with it that haven't been tested yet that are asymptomatic and stuff like that. So for me, I'm not thinking, I I personally don't think it's going to happen.
2: Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I hope you're not right, but yeah, I, I hope no, so no, too, no. because I love sports be. and I'm yeah. my moneymaker. So yeah, <laughs> of, course, of course, well, but now you got some other moneymakers. So let's talk great. a little bit about some of the other things you're doing since good, you're good. segue. You're, good. I love it. All right. yeah, you know, I'm the king of segues over here. Good segue, you've got great. Arthur, you've got uh, an amazing podcast, uh, the, the Arthur you. Motes Experience. Uh, you've got a book coming out, Moats Theory of Life, Uh, Tell us a little bit about some of these projects in the media world. And have you always been interested in that? Did you know that was uh, something you wanted to pursue? Yeah, man. So we're talking about from a media standpoint, I probably
0: probably was my third year in the NFL where I really said, whenever I do retire, I want to get into this. Number one, I used to get mad with the media. Because I would always feel like they control the narrative. They say, mm-hmm. I mean, you could say one thing and they're going to flip it into whatever story they wanted it to be. So I always made it a point that, okay, I'm going to talk to the media directly and I'm going to make sure that I'm getting this out here and I'm going to control this message. Mm-hmm. So from then I started my own radio show and I had a TV show when I was in Buffalo as well. And that was the whole thought process behind it. I want to be in control of this. I want to protect my guys. I want to protect me. And I want to make sure that when we're breaking down players or breaking down games, it would make me so mad when a guy that's never played the game, all he's done is watch take, and study it, and talks about, oh, this guy sucks. Oh, he's trying. I'm like, bro, he, he will dunk on you or this guy would dunk you on your head. Yes, like, sir. I don't want to hear any of that, man. And I feel like it was important. To, to hop into that field. So that was ultimately why I had decided to hop into the media field. And I mean, it's been a blast being able to cover some of my former teammates, but also being able to uh, to, to critique certain performances and give people the thought process behind it. You think this guy messed up because he wanted to? Right. I mean, think about it, Ralph, you think guys are missing jumpers in, in the because country said, they, they, they don't want to, miss? that's for sure. Exactly. And the people understand also once that happens, okay, this guy, you might see him on social media and they're like, oh man, you need to be going back to the gym and working. And I'm like, Dude, do you work 24 hours a day? Is that all you think about when when in, in your profession? No, you do have to get away from it sometimes. And I also like to explain to people that, man, these guys are bothered by it. When they mess up in a game, you think it eats you up, it kills them because the amount of time, the sweat, the sacrifice they put into it. So I always wanted to get that out there and make sure that people are understanding that and give them just perspective. So that was always, you know, my, my driving force with the media and why I enjoy doing it now. Mm. And then for my book, I actually, it, it did release already. I was able to release it in November, right before uh, Thanksgiving. And mm. I mean, it was a blast being able to just go through that writing process. For yeah. me, I mean, I always said I wanted to write a book too. And it was like, man, I thought it would be cool to be Arthur, the author, And that was like the whole thought process behind it. But then from there, man, it was like, you know what? Let's create a piece that is timeless. Let's create a piece that is motivational, is inspirational, not an autobiography, something that regardless of who you are, regardless of if you're a fan of me or not, you can read this and you can be a better person for it. You can grow from that. And that was the thought process with the book. And I mean, the reception from it has been awesome, man, in terms of the support I've received and things like that. So I've definitely been enjoying it.
1: So so tell people out there tell people out there where they can get their books because yeah. you know yeah. writing a book is um, is hard mm-hmm. as you know and but writing from your passion is easier. Mm-hmm. So one tell people where they can get it and then how did the family especially the wife play into that book?
0: Yeah, yeah, man. So first off, the book is available at motestheory.com, so just M-O-A-T-S, theory.com. And yeah, man, the my wife man, she now you she laugh, I've wired you that's why (laughs) well because the thing that's funny man when you're writing the book you know you you, you're going through all your drafts and I think my wife has probably read this book a thousand times because literally anything that I wrote in the book I'm like hey babe read this over quick tell me how you think about this and I had a a co-author an editor and obviously a full staff that helped but it's different because you you value their opinions but you trust your wife right and it was always I hear what they're saying but wifey you got to okay this yeah and it was times where she was like I'm tired of reading about the same book like I have read this story a thousand times I, I it was great the first time yeah, yeah but I'm like no it's got it's got to be perfect it has to be the perfect piece and especially when I share some of my personal experiences in terms of things that motivated me or some of the hardship I've experienced and stuff like that you always want to be cautious not to offend somebody or put them in a bad light either, but you don't want to water it down too much for people who can't fully grasp what you're trying to explain I to them.
1: I understand it. Yes, so so it's a
0: fine line, you have to tone and things like that. But ultimately, man, we were able to, to, to put out something that I was just extremely proud of because that was another thing. People talk about, man, I wrote my first book and I hated it. Like I don't want nobody to see this book. like.
1: Right. They wanted a telltale. Tell. tell all. You can't tell the story. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Right. So for me, I'm like, man, I really enjoyed my first book. And, and I definitely encourage people to get it. Like I said, most theory of life. And, and yeah, it's just something that's motivational. It's something that when you read it, you're going to come from this and say, you know what, man, I feel like a better person. I'm encouraged to do this. These are some of the check things that I can implement in my life, in my marriage, in my career, in just who I am as a man and
2: how I can grow from this. Give us a little a little sample takeaway. Like well, what is one of those theories of life? Something that you know people could expect from, from your book. Yeah, man.
0: So um I, I essentially break it down in terms of M-O-A-T-S. So obviously the my last name. Absolutely. Yeah, so you sure? yeah, so M makes yield strength. A actively seek to inspire others. T turning fear into focus. And then S smile. S M I L E spread my inner love everywhere. And for me, man, the, the one that I always enjoy was T turning fear into focus. Because I think it's something that so many people can relate to. We all have fear of something, fear of failing, fear of embarrassment, fear of heartbreak, fear of being viewed as weak. And especially us as men, we like to operate with that machismo that, man, we're good, we're perfect. If if your significant other asks you, hey, how are you feeling today? What are you going to say? I feel good. Are you tired? No. You hungry? I'm good. Like, that's always the response. Even though you know you're tired, you know you're hungry, you know all these things are going on. But when we're talking about turning that fear, because we don't want to be viewed as weak, we don't want to be viewed as insignificant. So I talk about how, man, it was times in my life where I had to really take that fear of, man, I don't want to say this or that fear that leap of, man, if we do this, I could fall flat on my face. This could be bad. But ultimately, how I was able to turn that fear, put it behind me, use it as a motivation to push me, to, to excel and do things and reach things that I never would have thought I could accomplish in my life. And that was the biggest thing that I took. And when I tell people about the book, that's what I always share to them. I'm like, man, don't let that thing block you from what it is. It, if you want to take that, for example, man, you took the jump from Cleveland to LA. I mean, it was scary. I'm sure it was. You get the uncertainty around it, but you did it. And then you look at how everything transpired after the positives that you were able to accomplish, mentally knowing what you were able to do, how much further you could go. If you allowed fear to block, you would have never, you would have never be able to see that for a potential yeah, from absolutely.
2: yourself. Well, I just, I paved the way for LeBron, Cleveland to LA. Essentially, He, he followed my <laughs> footsteps. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> now, 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 this is a diehard, he cried when LeBron went to LA. He's a diehard Cleveland Cavs fan, Ohio fan. He cried, but now he lives in LA. So I don't know if he's happy now, but he's still—I mean—die-hard Cleveland
2: fan. Die-hard right Cleveland fan, which is tough. It's made me a stronger, more resilient person, and I'm definitely going to pick up your book because I need that motivation when I'm watching Cleveland Browns games. I'm, I'm, I'm in a low place.
0: <laughs> you yeah. know, it's—it's it's funny, man. I don't know a lot of Cleveland like fans like that, and especially <laughs> Cavs fans. Like I, I'm a LeBron guy, so literally, yeah. I was with LeBron in Cleveland. I was with LeBron in Miami. I was yeah. with LeBron when we went back to Cleveland. Now I'm in LeBron with LA. This—I mean. All all right. It's so, so, so different for me. It's easier. Yeah. But it's the, much the easier, just, easier for you. Yeah. It's yeah, just exactly. me like a, a clean man. Like, oh, no, no. I like the team. Not the player, the team. Right. That's different. That's yeah, right. Yeah, it's
2: sad. It's sad. Well, he, likes it. he
1: likes the yeah. Jim Brown. He likes the history. That's mm, right. Okay, okay. He's a football enthusiast. He loved the history of the That's Cleveland right. Browns. I'm loyal,
2: you know? I, I <laughs> mean, it's amazing. We knew you were an incredible NFL player, had an amazing career. Definitely but you're also strange. Arthur, the author. Yes. You're also an incredible motivator. I mean, just hearing about your book, you could be a motivational speaker. You're a media mogul, podcast host. You're also uh self-proclaimed sneakerhead tell us a little uh, bit about that yes. how many shoes do you have where did this obsession yeah. start i i, w- I want to know everything as someone who's you know a little a micro uh sneakerhead over here all right no doubt so to start it out man let's see um
0: i have 350 pairs of shoes and and i'll put it let me put it in context 350 is the shoe boxes that i have so if you watch some of my podcast videos you see the containers that have shoe cases 350 of those but wow. literally I have a, a big, like, custom shoebox, a shoe shoebox that one of my, my rookies when I was playing in Pittsburgh had got made for me that probably has another 30 pair of shoes. Then I have a couple of other just, like, storage containers with shoes. Yeah, it's – it's it's Storage, storage containers. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: You got them all so labeled is, and handwritten and what they yeah, are. And-
0: absolutely. So the thing is this, man, when I was growing up, we, we, you know, very, very humble beginnings. You know, my family, we didn't have a lot of um, disposable income where we could just go out and buy multiple pairs of shoes. I was a part of the group where you got one pair of shoes per year, and you either going to get a white pair or a black pair because it has to match every outfit. Plus, it, it, plus, it, plus, it. plus
1: you were growing like a weed, eating them out of house yeah. and home, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. They, they couldn't even feed you. I mean, size no, well, no. I mean, no. <laughs> would grow every year. And like, okay, you can buy the 14, 15. I right. wear 17,
0: so I understand that. I mean, by, by middle school, me and my dad – we're at the same size shoe. And then yeah. by then, probably my eighth grade year, it was over. It was like, yeah, my foot's bigger than his. Got to go find my own shoe. And that's what it is. But, you know, no. for me, man, my passion started then, though. I remember I would see kids come back to school during Christmas or for Easter. And they got the new, new pair toys. of shoes. They got the new shoes. And I used to be like, man, I really wish I could do that. But I never had the money to. And even when I went to JMU, it was like I would get my Pell Grant check. But... I could only buy one pair of shoes because I still had to send money to like help out the family and stuff like that. But once I got to the NFL and obviously my my financial standing changed, I said, I see guys, they go buy cars all the time. I said, okay, cool. That's an expensive habit. I don't really, I mean, I can only drive one car anyway, so I'm good right now. I would see guys buy a ton of jewelry. I was like, man, for me, like once I bought a necklace and I got a watch, like that was all I wanted. I didn't need anything else. Mm -hmm. And I see guys that they, they go and, and they got to go on shopping sprees by all the designers. I'm like, I never really cared about that like that, you know, in terms of the it's different called, It's called
1: the seven, 757
0: in your but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then, man, I was like, shoes, like, and, and this is back when Jordan was first starting to start release, like, the retros. And I was like, I remember growing up being a fan of Jordan. So I started out just buying every Jordan that we would release. The yeah. retro color was the ones that he wore that you saw in The Last Dance. Uh And I would go back and get those. And then from there, it was like, okay, well, now I want to go and get certain Nikes that I liked. All right, well, now I want to get this shoe that I like. And then from there... It just grew to the point where now if I like a shoe or something special about a shoe or they have some type of history behind the shoe, I go and get it. And I mean, I was with you on the podcast yesterday, Ralph. Like I literally had just bought a pair of Pumas because they had just changed like into more of the cross trainer style look and it's super comfy. So I went and bought those. And now obviously being on the podcast with you, I'm like, I gotta go get your shoe. (laughs) your signature your shoe as well. Like just because like the connection with it. So Mm -hmm. for me, I'm always looking for just a dope shoe. And- when I think of uh, some of my, um, some guys that I've met just through my career that had transitioned into the fashion industry now that have created shoes. Uh, a friend of mine, Victor Cruz, we had played against each other in the CA. He was at UMass. We had the same agent for a little while. We spent time in the offseason. When he released his shoes, I wouldn't got that just because it's like, oh, this is my boy. If he got the shoe, I'm going to buy it. Like, yeah. that's just – you know what I mean? So, that was always my mindset. Even Vic, when we became teammates, it's like, okay, I'm going to get a pair of your shoes because, yeah, you got a signature shoe I know you now. I'm going to support. So, that's all, that's all my, my mindset with it, man. But I just – I love them. I can never get enough of them. Do you have a
2: favorite pair? Do you have like this is the gold standard? That's like you have a favorite
1: favorite child, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's
0: tough, man. So, and and I'll tell you this I'm a part of the I wear my shoe crowd. So, you got two types of sneakerheads. You got the ones that collect, they never wear them. Mm -hmm. Then you got the ones that wear every shoe. So, every shoe that I own, I've worn at least once, at least once. Now, I do have doubles of some shoes because I'm like, all right, I value this shoe so much that if I, if I <laughs> mess <it> up, <laughs> I got to have a backup. I got to know. Yeah, right. you have that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But man, um, in terms of favorite shoe, I'll probably give you like a list, a, a couple of my ones that stand out to me. Obviously, the um the, the Concord 11s, the, the ones that Jordan wore in Space mm-hmm. Jam, those, those are insane. Yeah. Um, I have a pair of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air Jordan 5s. Oh, like, oh wow insane actually that was one of the first shoes that got me into like collecting those style of shoes and, and being able to wear them uh man let's see what else we have i have a, a pair of the what the kds um uh-huh. the, what the kd i think it was the the eights maybe and then obviously a pair of the lebrons anytime lebron drops something, i go in yeah
2: but those, those are like some of my favorites and then um What's the most you've ever spent on a pair of shoes? Oh, yeah, hard to where you get tough now. Now we're getting. I mean, it. yeah. <laughs> All right, so I got. I, I'll put two categories. Okay. So
0: I have the most I spent on a sneaker. I have a pair of uh, Christian Louboutin, the, uh, the 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 sneaker like spikes and stuff like that, and I spent I think it was fifty three hundred dollars on it. I, I got it early. I was actually going to my playoff game. We are playing uh, the Division of Roberts, Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. Black with the red bottom. I had a custom, like, blazer yeah. with it. Because anytime we played somebody, I went to wear their cuz like, y'all, I'm coming to take over here. Right, right. So right. I would let them know. So I went and got these. Yeah, it, it was crazy. I, to this day, one of my favorite pair of shoes. I love them. But, yeah. yeah, very, very expensive. though. So they were for $300. And then um I have a pair of Jordan 1 uh, – I think how you pronounce this. It, it's called uh, a lea may. I think it's a Leia. lea. That's what you yeah. say. So it has like the corduroy and all these different uh, different yeah. fabrics that are put onto it. I think I ended up paying seventeen hundred for them. No, it was like seventeen hundred. I paid for those, and then what? a pair of the uh, the public school New York July twelve, the family and friends edition. That was another three grand for those because they only a limited release of them.
1: Uh, All right, so, so you, you so you probably were happy the other day when one of the Jordan shoes sold for five hundred sixty thousand dollars in the auction. You were probably <laughs> <like> ecstatic. <laughs> so you probably Absolutely. got you probably got that pair in your in yes. your warehouse somewhere, right? Yes. So. That, that, those, was crazy. That, that shoe go off for auction, so it's yeah,
0: crazy. got Any of those uh, Dorenbacher Jordans too, the ones where they have the uh, the Dorenbacher Hospital in Oregon where they will have some of the uh, the terminally ill children yeah, yeah. get to custom create a pair of Jordans. Hmm. I always support those, always buy those, even though they're very expensive just because of the story behind it. But when right, right. you look at them, it's just like you're never going to find them. And I love the shoes that they don't make a lot of either. Right, like when you talk about some edition. of those shoes, it's super limited, yeah. so yeah, it's going to cost more, but you you know, right. only the true sneakerheads, the guys who are really passionate about it, are going to have these type of shoes. Well,
1: you you got to teach the kids about the shoe because, uh, that's a legacy in its own right. Oh, without a doubt, right, <laughs> right, they're very valuable. Very, very, yes, I, 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 well, I had a pair of shoes on, I, I, I get, got them from somewhere. Um, uh, I won't say the brand because I got to be all pulling out, but anyway, I got a pair of shoes, I had them on. <laughs> I had them on, and my son said, Dad, you know what shoes you got on? I said, No, I said, This is a pair of shoes, a freaking pair of shoes. He said, No, those shoes are worth X. Yeah. I like, okay. he said, Can I have them? Because he wears my size. <laughs> I said, No, you can't have them because they weren't. Then I need to have them. So I ended up giving them to him. I don't know what he did with them, but I started <laughs> to understand shoes about a couple, you no, know, about four or five years ago now. But yeah, it's amazing it's to business. see that many pairs. It's a, it's a business. It's the truth. sure.
2: You said that the resale market is crazy, man. And it is it's to crazy. Me, sneakers are they do tell a story you know mm-hmm. it's there's memories associated, personal stories arthur just like you said about your childhood and oh i wanted that pair of j's and now mm-hmm. you can get them but they also tell a story about who they represent, who the yes. person is. And, and one thing that's been clear from having you as a guest here, you are an amazing storyteller, Arthur. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and you truly are. at a great storytelling from your days of playing to what you're doing now in the media, on your podcast, your book, and beyond. So I think that's one of the reasons you're uh, attracted to the sneakerhead culture too yeah. because it's about the stories and is, you man. definitely – have a passion for life. Uh, we we learned a lot here today. Right, I'm definitely going to be smiling it. now. You got to smile, more.
0: man. Absolutely. That's
1: You right. got to get the most theory, baby. You got to get
2: the book. We got to yes, get the book. Yeah, right.
0: Send me your address, man. I'm going to see y'all copies out there, no, man. I'll do that. Absolutely. Send
2: it. Amazing. Right. We love that. Well, thank you. And where can everybody follow you? You know, where the best places for all of yeah. our listeners to follow your adventures and your journeys because you're doing great stuff.
0: Man, I appreciate it, man. So I'm on all the social media platforms, Instagram and Twitter. My uh, handle is at Dabody52. That's dabody 5 Dabody. Wow, that's funny. That was,
2: that was my nickname in high school too. <laughs> that's
0: crazy. Yeah. And then I'm on YouTube as well. Um, just YouTube backslash Arthur Motes 55. That'll take you to my YouTube page. you are able to see all the interviews and the different podcast episodes and things that we're doing along that line, man. But yeah those are the main spots man and yeah uh and reach reach out to me man i'm always communicating up there man i'm one of the guys that would definitely talk back to you
2: everyone's gonna hit him up he, he's gonna give away all shoes to all of all of our, our listeners Absolutely, <laughs> Absolutely. No, just kidding <laughs> well arthur thank you so much man for joining us really appreciate your time all your stories and loved all the great it. things doing, the work you're doing man, i
0: appreciate y'all man definitely means a lot to be on with you
2: Wow, Ralph, I could have talked to Arthur all day. That was a phenomenal interview with a really special guy. Yeah, I mean, just interesting
1: stories and his perspective of life on the field, off the field, family man, business person, media guy. I mean, smile, bubbly. I mean, what can you I mean, I, I can't ask for anymore. Great, great, great show.
2: Really great show. A great guy. Can't wait to read his book. And, oh, my gosh, uh, yes. I'm going to hit him up on Instagram, see what shoe size he wears. I forgot to ask him. You know, maybe I can fit in. I'm mean, at 350
1: pair of shoes. 350 pair of shoes. Come on.
2: Yeah, he can spare a he couple. of yeah
1: win. I want, to, I want yes. those $5,300 ones. That's, that's the ones I want.
2: Oh, all right. Yeah, I'm just looking for any, uh, you know, whatever. You you want the good stuff. And I we got to get stuff. some... We got to get some Puma Ralph Sampson. Yeah, shoe, we, right? we, we,
1: we, we, that's in the that works. We need to, we need to do that for sure. We'll have those soon, but yeah, exactly. can you imagine seven foot four and a 5,300 pair of Gucci shoes? I don't think that looks good, but I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it.
2: I'd like to see that for sure. Exactly. Well, thank you all for listening to another episode. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Arthur. We've got some incredible guests coming up. I can't wait for you to see and listen to who is coming on the show next. It's going to be great. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow us on our social media channels, uh, Center Court 50, Ralph Sampson 50, Jay-Z Fish on Instagram and Twitter. We're going to keep you up to date with all the upcoming guests and all the things that you're going to want to follow to be a part of the Center Court podcast experience here. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Stay tuned.
0: Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. Save big money on your outdoor
1: project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape